0: Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machin. Written at the beginning of the 20th century, Machin's classic work remains as relevant today as it was when it was written. Machen sought to expose liberalism's foundation as contrary to that of orthodox, biblical Christianity. In his own words, Machen saw the issue in the church of the present day as being not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom, between two essentially different types of thought and life. So prepare yourself as we dive into the antithesis of Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. The Ardent Archives is a podcast ministry of North Clay Baptist Church where we are reading and discussing books from church history. I am one of your hosts. My name is Pastor Drew Bieber and I'm here with my co-host Pastor Josh McDaniel. Josh, how are you this morning? Doing very well. Excited to kind of talk about
1: Machen and the book that we've just read.
0: Uh, Me as well. Um, and, uh, before, but before we jump into that, let me, uh, address a couple of things. Um, so I, uh, routinely after we record these things, I go back and I listen to the podcast. I do listen to the recordings, um, not because I like the sound of my own voice, but because I am, uh, extremely critical of myself in particular. Right. right. And so because I also like to, um, be somewhat self-deprecating and talk about how terrible I sound and how no. weird I sound and all that sort of stuff. Nothing feels I do. better than to break our own selves. Down, I, exactly. It? Exactly. <laughs> and so all that to say in listening back to the podcast, um, I have discovered that, um, at times I say things incorrectly. Okay. And I get facts incorrect as well. Okay. Um, for instance, Uh, when we were discussing uh, assurance, I mentioned that uh, Calvin uh, wanted his theology to be understood through the lens, primarily through the lens of his preaching. And I had that backwards. He wanted his preaching Mm -hmm. to be primarily understood through the lens of the institutes. I didn't didn't catch it. See, I didn't catch it either. Um, And I think I just remembered it wrong. And that's why I said it wrong. But I'm saying this now because I want to be upfront. You know, if I make mistakes, I want to acknowledge those mistakes, and I also just want to make clear that I'm going to make mistakes, and it's it's part of just being, you know, hey, you and me, a member both. of fallen humanity. That's so.
1: right, that's right. You and me both, Drew. I, I I shudder sometimes to think about the things I've said um, when teaching or or when uh, you know walking through lessons and stuff like that. I look back and think, oh man. Did I really just say that? Right, and, right. And I have to go back. Not anything necessarily heretical or you know, uh, you know, condemning, but just oh, I had that whole quote botched, you know, right, or something right. like that, you know. Or
0: well, and I was listening to someone else. I was listening to uh, I think it was James White, and he he was making that point. You know, Calvin wanted his theology to be understood through the Institutes, and I went, oh, I have that totally backwards, and right. I totally said the one hundred percent incorrect thing right. On, right. on on this issue. And so, at any rate. I just wanted to acknowledge the mistakes and, you know, just make sure everyone understands that it's bound to happen. It Listen. is what it is. And if James White is listening, thanks, James. Yeah, I do appreciate the correction there. I doubt he listens to this. I don't <laughs> think he's got time for that kind of thing.
1: He ain't no probably got time for that. No.
0: But at any rate, you know, I am very excited to discuss this book. I read this book for the first time, um, I guess, it's about five or six years ago. Okay. Um, at the time I was working at a, uh, financial institution. I was looking, working at a local credit union and, you know, there was always time in between, you know, dealing with, you know, members and different things like that. And so to kill the time, I would pull up a phone or uh, a, a phone on my book, pull up a book on my phone and, uh, you know, would pass the time by, by reading through different books. And this was one of them that, uh, I had heard about. You know, I knew who Machen was loosely, and so I decided to go ahead and read this book. And it had, I mean, just a tremendous impact on my understanding of what is foundational and what is fundamental to the Christian faith.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this was the first time I had read this book. I had heard about it. And it was kind of one of those that I had on my list to read. Yeah. Um, But I had never actually pulled it off the shelf, started reading through it until you said, hey, I think this would be the next one we should Work through and so then you know kind of pulled it off and and looked at it and so glad that we took the time to read this one and it's oh absolutely even though it was written in 1923 man it is still so timely for our generation and our times today yeah
0: and i think you know uh, i think truth is timeless and so anytime you are presenting uh truth i think that it always uh stands the test of time it never goes you know out of style so to say right um even though I guess you could make the argument that today truth is somewhat out of style. Nobody cares about truth. Nobody wants to know the truth. But, um, but Jesus is the one who said, you know, I am the way and the truth. Yeah. And we live in God's world. So it's kind of an inescapable concept in that sense. We'll, well never be able to outrun or escape or bury the truth. That's just the nature of living in God's world.
1: Right. and The thing is, is they just change terms, you know, when sure, Jesus, sure. when Jesus spoke truth, he was called narrow and he was called, you know, blasphemer, uh, blasphemer. You know, when we speak truth, we're called bigots. You yeah, know what I mean? So right, we just, right. we just, <laughs> we just changed terms. You know, that's, that's all. But I mean, truth has never been popular right. uh, with the uh, world. Yeah. And uh, truth has always had a way of, of cutting to uh, the heart of people and saying things they don't like to hear all the time, but it has always always stood the test of time. It's never gotten outdated.
0: Right, right. And speaking of that, I was listening to another podcast and he made the the comment, you know, in the the movie Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. the saying is life will find a way. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, I think that's uh, that, that's true of truth. Truth always finds a way. Right. And I think, you know, we see that on display in in this work in particular. And so, before we actually get into the book, you know, obviously in these introductions, we want to talk about the author, kind of talk about some of the events leading up to writing the book. Uh, but but for this discussion as well, we're also going to cover the introduction of the book because we yeah. actually read through and, uh, you know, the actual introduction of the book, because, you know, we can talk about why Machen wrote the book, but why not let Machen speak for himself yeah. as to why he wrote the book? Yeah, and so yeah. that's one of the main reasons we wanted to do that. And so we do want to cover uh, kind of who he was, kind of what his background is, but then also cover the introduction of the book as well. And so Machen was uh, one of three uh, sons born to Arthur Webster Machen and Mary Jones Gresham. He was born in 1881 in Maryland. So,
1: well, you know, so he he had a, he had ties here in America, which is which is really interesting right, too. Right. Uh, you know, the guys that we've we've read thus far, they weren't. Americans, you No, know. none of them were. And so this was an interesting thing to, you know, this guy, he, he was there, you know, with a lot of things that, you know, we learn about, um, in history and in our schools and everything like from the American history, from our own background as Americans, right, right. he was there in the middle of it. His brother even fought in the civil war, you know, I mean, kind of stuff like that, you know, where we, uh, we kind of
0: think, wow, that he's, it feels just more, Home based in some ways, right? And I mean, and he, um, you know, some of the main events of his life were, you know, within the last century, which for us seems like a long time ago, but in the span right. of human history, a hundred years is nothing like this. No. is that like this is recent, these are recent events. Machin is a recent, as a you know, in all senses of the word, he's a modern individual. He's right. Modern, I mean, you
1: know, I mean, character. I mean, maybe not for everyone listening to this, you know, podcast, Drew, but at least for you and I, he died in the same century we were born in. You know, what right. I mean? Right. I mean, Which is You know, I mean, that's, that's, and I know that that for some people listening, that might be like completely far gone, but for well, us, I mean, it, we're
0: it, still there in it. In some senses, though, we think of like, oh, he was born in the 1800s. That could have been 1801 or that could have been 1890. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we think, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, Josh McDaniel and Drew Bieber lived in the same century as Jay Gresson Machen. It's like, yeah, but they were separated by several decades. a little decades. bit of a gap there. A little bit of a gap
1: there. Just a, you know, just a smidgen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in that way, we, we can see because we, we, we grew up and we are still growing up in the country that he... Made his fight in, in in the times that he made his fight in, and kind right, of the right. history of we we grow up realizing and seeing the fruit of some of the the things that he laid down, and um and we're still seeing that today. And yeah, we're still seeing that fight played out. Today. We're still seeing the fight, and we're still seeing that hey, it's still the same charge that he was making in this book. Right. You know, right. it's you know this is where the liberal ideas. Stray from the Christian ideas, and he makes no bones about. It. He pulls no punches. He calls it liberalism and Christianity. Like right, he said like liberalism right. had no place in Christianity in his own wording in this book and in every kind of debate that he undertook.
0: Yeah, so he was raised in a, a Christian home, uh, and he was catechized uh, primarily by his mother. His mother was a uh, lifelong Presbyterian. Um, and so he was raised learning the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and yeah. the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, and when he uh, graduated high school, I guess if you could call it graduating high school, I think it was it's a little bit different, different back, yeah. Yeah, back in those days. But at the age of 17, he went on to study at Johns Hopkins, where he got his undergraduate degree in uh, the classics. And when he graduated, you know, his father was a uh, was a lawyer. And when he graduated, he was kind of Somewhat torn between, sort of the path he wanted to take on his life, um, he had considered studying law. Uh, he had considered studying medicine as well, yeah. and what was also on the table was was uh, studying theology. And eventually, that's what he settled on, and, and he chose to study theology at Princeton Seminary, uh, which you know today we would not see as sort of a bastion of, of Christian. Um, no, not at all. Intellectual thought, but at the time, you know. Princeton Seminary was one of the foremost uh, Christian seminaries, on really in the world. Um, And there's a, um, you know, people often refer to the great Princeton theologians. You Mm -hmm. know, of of which Mm -hmm. Machen is largely considered the last of the great Princeton theologians. And he actually, while he was, you know, when he decided to go and study theology there, he also uh, was seeking a a dual master in uh, philosophy from. Princeton University at the same time
1: which came in very handy
0: oh absolutely very very handy it's interesting though you know you said
1: he was considering going into to law or you know or theology was on the table but it's, it's always interesting when you see some of these guys who make the biggest splash they they look at their life and they they recognize I've got options right I've got, right. I've got avenues and areas that I could go and and they make themselves or they I guess they poise themselves to make an impact in all these potential areas but then because of the Lord's work in their life or because of even you know the Lord's work through the culture in their life they settle in on I want to be and do good for the church and for the Christian faith and man these guys sometimes they make the biggest impact because they recognize I could be these things in the world but God has given me these talents uniquely to serve the church. And, right, uh, and right. that was Machin, man.
0: Well, and it's it's so different from our modern age where people aren't content to work in the areas that God has given them. Mm-hmm. Instead, we are very uh what's what's the right way to describe it? Like very movement oriented yeah everybody wants to make an impact yes and so we start looking for ways to make an impact rather than focusing on you know diligence and faithfulness where god has placed us
1: everybody wants to be infamous yes Uh, yes everybody wants to be that they don't they don't consider that hey you know what being the guy who has served the church and have been at a church for 50 years is just as impactful and more impactful than 15 minutes of fame right here being on you know whatever it is youtube or you know whatever
0: well and you know you see this sort of in in microcosm with all of these social media platforms where um you know comedy for instance people will write comedy for the social media algorithms they're not actually trying to be funny they're trying to get likes. They're trying to get plays. They're trying to get views or whatever, you know, whatever the particular mechanism is for that platform. And so they're writing intentionally to sort of trick the algorithm into pushing their content further. Right. And, and it's just unfortunate because I'm like, what, you know, nobody cares about what's actually funny anymore. It's, it's what gets the most views. It's right. what's what gets the most likes. And you know, and, and sometimes that, that's the way we approach our life is we think, how can I trick, you know, this life algorithm into, you know, success and fame and fortune and all those sorts of thing instead of let me just look at where where God has placed me and let yeah. me just be the best there. Yeah, I think, you know, it'd be safe to say that Machen wasn't trying to do what he did, but as a natural outworking of what God was doing in his life. This inevitably happened
1: right because he was called to fight a fight right and so since he was called to fight a fight he took up arms and he did it with every bit of fervor that he had and because of his fervor because of his eloquence because of all these kinds of things that God gifted him with we are talking about him today right and we are right. talking about his book but that was never the goal he was never he was never looking for the quote unquote Likes or the quote unquote views of the day, right? Right. He wasn't trying to go viral, yeah. In in modern parlance, he what he was trying to do is he was trying to take up the call that God had given to him and right. what He had put in His lap. And so often, we view ministry as much more about how many eyes can be on us rather than how can we take this gospel and how can we be used by God to be involved in the lives of those that God brings
0: to us. Right, right. And so he, um, in 1905, he spent a year uh, during his theological studies, he spent a year in Germany. And there he stuttered under a Wilhelm Helm Hermann, who was a Lutheran-German theologian. And uh, this uh, Professor Hermann uh, was also... um, also taught some other famous characters such as uh, Rudolf Bultmann mm-hmm. and Karl Barth, mm-hmm. and uh, his theology was largely influenced by uh, Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Um, and during Machen's time studying under him, uh, you know, because he took a very sort of liberal perspective on the Christian faith, uh, you know, Machen actually admitted that he struggled with his faith while. He was in Germany and most of what we know about Machen, um, he, you know, more than anything else, he wrote letters to his mother Yeah, Um, and he also wrote letters to his father, but him and his mother had a special relationship where they were constantly, uh, writing back and forth. And that's a, a lot of where we, where we understand sort of Machen and where he was and sort of his, uh, you know, development and his theology. And as a person, you know, we can, we can glean from his, his letters to his parents. And we actually found this out through a letter that he wrote to his father where he said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat confused about my faith because of the things that I'm learning here in Germany under this liberal professor. And yet it was through that experience that he became very resolved and very sure of his faith, particularly, uh, that which is taught in the reformed traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, although, Although it was a difficult experience because because he struggled with his faith, this is what actually uh, strengthened his faith, and and he became very uh, convinced and very strong in in what he understood as as the true biblical teaching. And we see
1: that played out over and over and over again in Christianity, in particular, where struggle or where uh, uh, or where testing or trials, those things produce in Christians. A fervor or a i guess a a passion for the true and right gospel that is unyielding right and and so it worked its way out in machin and because of that he became such a staunch fighter for the true gospel and and um I think back to the Pilgrim's Progress, you know, where you have the, in the interpreter's house, and you have Satan who's, who's casting uh, his liquid upon the, uh, upon the flame. And, and, and you think that the flame should be burnt out, you know, and, and everything like that. Um, But then he's taken, Christian is taken to the other side where he sees what's actually happening is the water in the bucket that's being poured on the fire is being (laughs) replaced by the spirit. And it is through, the, the water or the the bucket being is representing persecution and the flame is representing the church. And so this devil thinks he's throwing something that should be putting
0: out the church. Right, but the fire grows hotter and hotter because, hotter because, and of, hotter. The, because of the spirit's work. Because the
1: spirit is changing that water in the bucket to an oil or into a kind of a kerosene or a, a, a inflammatory, uh, an inflammatory liquid. Right, right. And so... Every time he gets—anyway, Machen, he meets it head on, and instead of him crumbling underneath the pressure of it, man, it it, just—it almost ignites him even hotter for the gospel. Right, absolutely. And so by the time he comes back to the States in 1906 to start teaching at Princeton, and he starts seeing that same garbage being espoused there, man, he's ready to fight. Oh, absolutely. He's no longer being taught by a professor. He is now the professor— yeah, and so yeah. as the
0: professor, let me take up arms against this. Right. And he, you know, very quickly after, you know, coming home from, from Germany, you know, he, he settled at Princeton and he was a, a um, you know, continued his work as a New Testament scholar there. And he quickly gained a reputation uh, for being a, a true intellectual and being able to engage the Christian faith on an intellectual level. Um, and, and more than anyone else, really he was able to combat these liberal ideas, um, you know, not just on the theological level, but also on the intellectual level, yeah. which I like you, like you mentioned, I think his, his study in philosophy, you know, definitely. That was a huge contributor in that, in, yeah. in that front.
1: Absolutely. It was. Um, and, and, and that kind of guys like that in particular today, uh, when you have intellectuals rise up for Christianity, they just get mocked and they get mocked and they get mocked and mocked. Um, back then if you had an intellectual who could compete there there seemed to be i guess at least on some level there was a bit of respect hey there's an intellectual over here and we've got an intellectual over here and they might have differing views but they have a respect for each other in that you know we're gonna legit see which debate you know what what right 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 i guess the side of or i guess the the evidence leans towards in this debate today you know, it's a little bit more. True intellectualism isn't exi- as prominent today. No, not at all. Um, but back then, because he was an intellectual, man, that made a huge difference. Yes,
0: he absolutely. wasn't just getting
1: up there and on the street level just arguing. No, no, no. He was he was arguing from the intellectual, academic prowess of Princeton. Right, right. And
0: and uh, man, that was a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do just want to hit, uh, just a couple of highlights from, from his time at Princeton in 1921, he wrote, uh, probably his most famous book, which is the origin of Paul's religion. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things he started to notice is that there was this idea that, uh, Paul's theology was somewhat different, uh, from Jesus's theology. Uh, I mean, we, we hear that today, you know, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I don't like that Calvinism because, you know, it relies too heavily on Paul. I'm more interested in what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that sort of understanding comes from a, a faulty understanding of yeah, the nature means... of Scripture. But you also are mistaken. Paul and Jesus are completely aligned in what That's they're right. taught. That's right. Um, but the main push of this book was to sort of combat the idea and to critique those who were saying that Paul's theology was derived primarily from Greek mythology and philosophy. That, that yeah. that's really where Paul was coming from, as he was a, you know, a Greek philosopher more than he was, you know, a Jesus follower or something like that. Um, but that was uh, probably his most popular work. And then, like we've already mentioned, in 1923, he wrote Christianity and Liberalism, and we'll kind of circle back to that when we mm-hmm. talk about the introduction to the book. Um, in 1925, he wrote a book called What Is Faith, and in, in that book, his his primary goal was to, um really anchor the Christian faith in, uh, not just the person work of Jesus Christ, you know, in general, but Mm -hmm. specifically the historical, uh, truth of the atonement of Christ. He was, you know, some people, you know, and I've heard this today as well. Some people like to say, well, it doesn't matter if it actually happened, you know, uh, right. Whether or not it actually happened is, you know, is, is kind of irrelevant. You know, is what he taught is what Jesus taught good is what he did good. Yeah. And, um, You know, and Machen kind of hits on this in -hmm. in, in In, in the book that we just read. Yeah, Yeah. where he talks about, you know, the, um, you know, Jesus was not just our example of faith, but he was the actual object of faith. And if what he did didn't actually happen, well, then our faith is, you know, as the Apostle Paul says, we're the most to be pitied. That's right. If it didn't happen. That's right. right. And then in 1929, he actually, this is when he actually left Princeton Um, at the time. You know, Princeton still is uh, under the auspices of the Presbyterian Church USA, yeah. uh, the PCUSA, not to be confused with the PCA, which is, you know, a, a separate sort of denomination. Yeah. But at the time it was referred to as the Northern Presbyterian Church and later became the PCUSA. Right. And they uh, reorganized uh, the Princeton Seminary and they appointed two uh, signatories from what was known as the Auburn affirm, uh, Affirmation, and they signed these two signatories to the Board of Trustees. And what this Auburn Affirmation was, is it um, it was the culmination of the of really the controversy between the modernists yeah. and the fundamentalists. Yeah. And really, they were more than anything else. They were trying to denounce the procedure. Uh, affirming the fundamentalists in the General Assembly of the Northern Presbyterian Church. Yeah.
1: In other words, they were siding with exactly what right. Machen had been saying needed to be condemned or right, needed to be right, distanced right. from. Princeton decided we were going to side with it.
0: Well, not just Princeton in particular. You know, but the Princeton the PCUSA, Seminary, is say, yeah, the but the PCUSA, PCUSA in general. PCUSA. In general. Uh, this Auburn Affirmation was really a you know was a was a liberal position. Yeah. Um, and it was a response to a controversy that arose out of Harry Ed, uh, Emerson Fostick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Mm-hmm. And so that they sort of came up with this statement saying, you know, we reject this fundamentalist ideology. You know, I'm probably butchering the description of that. But, but they they, but anyway, a, a draw. They, was, they drew a line in the sand. Right, and, right. And, these, Auburn, these Auburn Affirmation signatories, like you said, they drew a line in the sand and they said, you know, we, we we're sort of rejecting some of this fundamentalist teaching. And when... Princeton decided to allow some of these signatories on the, the board of trustees, you know, they were essentially making a public statement that we have no problem with these liberals. And I mean, as we saw in in the book, you know, Machen saw liberalism not as, you know, sort of a, you know, competing Christian idea. He saw it as a completely separate yeah. religion.
1: And, and when you see, when he sees this line in the sand, I mean, that's exactly what you, you, you know, there's a line in the sand. Are you going to cross it? And so he has a decision to make, but it's really not a decision at all to make because of the stance that he's taken so um, firmly in this book. Right, right. As well in all of his teaching. I mean, there's a, you know, are you going to side with, are you going to come on this side of the line? And are you going to play nice with all these liberal theologians and all these guys who are having a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Are you going to come over here with us and play nice with us? Or are you going to, are you going to continue to take your stand? Right. And for right. Machen, in 1929. I mean, it's it's a it's a choice, but it's not really a choice. Right.
0: I mean, and he makes that clear in the last chapter of the book where, you know, he's kind of going back and forth on this idea, okay? So, if the church is capitulating to these liberal ideologies, who who should really be the one to step out? Mm-hmm. You know, and he makes the point. It makes the most sense for the liberals to step out because they're the ones standing opposed to the historic tenets of that denomination, of the constitutions of that denomination, the confessions, um, but he also makes the case that um, it, it, there there could be a time and a place yeah. for the orthodox, for the conservatives, uh, to step out if if they continue in a certain direction, and that's exactly you know, that's exactly what he did. Yeah, and when he stepped out, he actually formed uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, which, in my opinion, is one of the more uh, you know foremost theological seminaries you know in the United States today but particularly Reformed yeah uh, that, that come from the Reformed perspective yeah
1: well and it's because they again they made the they. well it's called Westminster so the, obviously the Westminster Confession they, they made the Bible their that was their standard right, you know, that, right. that hey we, we've got to we've got to a truth that is not going to be changing. And so we're not going to try to conform truth to the culture. We're going to let the Bible set the standard.
0: Well, and this is what Machen had to say during his inaugural address at Westminster Theological Seminary on September 25th, 1929. He said this, he said, quote, We believe first that the Christian religion as set forth in the confession of faith of the Presbyterian church is true. We believe second that the Christian religion welcomes and is capable of scholarly defense. And we believe third, that the Christian religion should be proclaimed without fear or favor and in clear opposition to whatever opposes it, whether from within or without the church. As the only way of salvation for lost mankind, on that platform, brethren, we stand. Pray that we may be enabled by God's grace to stand firm. Pray that the students who go forth from Westminster Theological Seminary may know Christ as their own savior and may proclaim to others the gospel of his love. So he makes clear that this is this is why we exist this mm-hmm. is the whole reason we're we're developing and we're founding this seminary and really there's no um, there's no way around it you know we believe right. what the confession says we believe that the christian faith is an intellectual faith and engages not only the heart but also the head
1: yes and that we also yes.
0: you know believe that the christian faith should be proclaimed without fear that we should not, we we should not be afraid of what the culture does to us, and I think Machen embodied this in particular in his fight with Princeton and in his fight with, um, you know, the PC USA at at large. And he, you know, I mean, and for what it's
1: worth, I mean, he did die young, but yes. for the rest of his life, I mean, which after he. You know, formed Westminster Theological Seminary and founded the OPC and everything like that. He didn't have much longer after that, and he he didn't know it. You know, I mean, he he wasn't aware. It's not that he had a slow fade or anything like that, or uh, you know, it came on quick. He died of pneumonia, but for the rest of his life, he championed that cause. He was maybe not the loudest voice. He was maybe not the most famous voice, but man, he was a champion for that cause. Yeah, and he fought hard tooth
0: and nail. Um, So much so that he was defrocked. Yes. So, so he left Princeton in 1929, Mm -hmm. but he didn't leave the PCUSA or the Northern Presbyterian church. He stayed in for another six or seven years. Again, I think calling in there that, you
1: know, like he said, there might be a time when we have to step aside and we have to get out. And so he got out of the I guess the school or the academic arena of it and said, let's 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 make sure we have academia that is going to be biblically based. Right, right. But he didn't leave the church. No. He still stayed within the church because he still saw that as a primary fight that he needed to take up and, and right, champion right. And, and and be a voice in.
0: And this all um, you know, this all came to a head in, in nineteen thirty-two. So the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions uh was kind of you know, they were kind of lax in some of the liberal theology that was you know permeating um, you know a lot of the mission field, which he says in Presbyterian the Presbyterian Church. yeah. And so he formed what was known as the independent uh, board of Presbyterian foreign missions. And really this was th- this was sort of his way of remaining within the denomination and trying to combat this this liberal, sort of ideology that was taking place on the mission field because the only thing worse than, than entertaining sort of heretical doctrines, you know, liberal theology and all these sorts of things within your, your own church or your own denomination is to export it around the world. And so he thought this is, you know, okay, as of right now, right, this is kind of an in-house fight. This is something we're we're working out as a denomination, but then it got worse, and it was like, "Oh, so we're not we're not having an in house fight anymore. We're now sending this garbage." Yeah, elsewhere. we're we're we are propagating. Yes. We are
1: you know this this out there in in a, in a mission field
0: in the name of our denomination, yes. in the name of the Christian faith, and yes. we see that. I mean, we see that sort of thing today with some of the the health and wealth, prosperity gospel. It is in the, the name yeah, of the of, of American one. Christianity. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, if you were to you know, classify it that way. The main export of American Christianity is prosperity theology it's and the, the health and wealth gospel.
1: It's the number one religion, and I say that loosely. Right, well, no, it right. is a religion. I, I, I don't say it loosely. It is a religion. It's a false religion. It is a it is a cult-ish religion, but it is a religion that is not Christian, and it is being exported more than any other religion from
0: America. Right, right. right. And so in... Um, so, so, that happened in 1932. In 1934, the General Assembly of uh, the PCUSA actually censured him for, mm. for doing this. And eventually, they they came around in 1935 and they they defrocked him. They basically took away his his credentials. So, you know, you know we're you know we're we're Baptists, and as of right now, we're we're in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. But in order to be a minister. In a Baptist church, right, you have to you have to be ordained. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in just about any church, really. Um, and in particular, in Presbyterian churches, their ordination process is pretty rigorous. Um, a lot more than Baptist. Yeah, oh, yeah, a lot more than Baptist. And I have a friend, he's actually, he's in the PCA, and he is working on, you know, Um, eventually becoming an ordained elder in the PCA. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of at really the start of this journey. And some of the things he was telling me he's got to go through, I mean, is like I said, it's rigorous. Mm -hmm. But in 1934, or excuse me, in 1935, they basically took his credentials away. And so he went through the work. He um, went through the process of becoming an ordained minister in this denomination. And because of his commitment to biblical truth, they... They took that ordination away. Yeah, man, They, they, they said, said you're no longer allowed said, to serve. They you. said, you know,
1: we're, we're going to take it back. You're no longer recognized as any kind of authority, any kind of minister, any kind of teacher, any kind of anything here in in our denomination. And our and, and I guess denomination wouldn't have been the appropriate term. Well, it probably was the appropriate term yeah, back then. Yeah, I would think so. But um, but they said you can't be. You can't be a part of that. You absolutely cannot be. So I love Machen's move here. Yeah. You're going to defrock me. You know what we're going to do? We're founding something else.
0: Buddy. That's right. That's right. And so it was after being defrocked that he went on to form the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, mm-hmm, which again has a, has a strong reputation of being, uh, uh, committed to the reformed faith and to conservative, uh, the conservative understanding of the reformed faith and, Really, when we look at Machen's life, um, you know, we can we can read his his books, we can read his biographies, we can read his letters, but his legacy comes or, or we really see the true testament to his legacy in Westminster Theological Seminary yeah. and in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Those are the two the two big institutions that really are continuing Machen's Machin's right. legacy and his fight against um you know, all things that stand opposed to the Christian faith, which
1: is, you know, and it is it is something to say that, you know, he started between 1935 and 1936, founding the OPC. And then in 1937, man, he dies on New Year's yeah. Day. Yeah. 1937, he dies of pneumonia. Um, and man, he didn't he didn't see that
0: coming. No. Nobody did. You know, he actually um, he was actually went to North Dakota to um, to, you know, make Made good on some commitments he he had made for mm-hmm. for speaking engagements, mm-hmm. um, and it was while he was in North Dakota that he caught pneumonia and died on January first, nineteen thirty seven. And so you know we see this at this, a very young age of 19, of, of fifty five.
1: Yeah, and so we see this guy who was man such a in a lot of ways he was such a bulldog, you know, and and just would not be you know he was he was you know he would not he would not leave. Right. Unless he absolutely felt convicted that he had to go. Or until they kicked him out. Or until they kicked him out. And that's such a difference. And that's why I called him a bulldog. It's such a difference from today's time. A lot of times we we get the mindset, especially here in America, and understand, again, Machen is an American. Yeah. yeah. We get the mindset here in America that, well, if I don't like what the preacher is saying, or if I don't like this, that, or the other at this church... I will go across the street and I'll find one that's more to my liking. Find a new
0: church, a new job, a new group of friends, right. a new girlfriend, a new wife, a new we're, whatever, we're you know, new family. We're all about
1: that. But a lot of the stories of these great men of faith are the ones who sat there and said, no, I see the problem, I acknowledge the problem, and I don't abandon. Rather, I roll up my sleeves and I go to work. Right, and I right. will work until either I... Am convinced by Scripture that I have to wipe the dust from my feet, as Paul would have done. I am kicked out for the sake of the gospel, or I am called home to be with the Lord. Right, which right. is where that, I mean those. That's why Machen left all the things that he was convicted by Scripture. It was time to. Wipe the dust from his feet from Princeton. So he did. And what did he do? He goes and forms a Westminster Theological Seminary so that he can continue doing the work, but just in a, in a better situation. He would not leave the PCUSA. They kicked him out. The, they turned their back on him. Right, right. And then he worked until he died to make sure, to ensure that the gospel was continued on and gone is that mindset. But man, if there has ever been a time that Christians need to return to that, uh, understanding and that, that passion and kind
0: of that, that bulldog mentality, man, we need it today. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, more than anything else, this is, you know, this to me is my biggest takeaway from, from Machen is that he was primarily committed to being faithful to God in his word, Wherever he was, yes, um, he wasn't chasing a movement. He wasn't chasing, uh, you know, his own fame and fortune. He wasn't trying, you know, like I like I mentioned earlier, he wasn't trying to hack the algorithms so that he could, you know, go right. viral in a manner of speaking. He was just, he was just committed to being faithful where God had him. Yes, yeah, and I think that's what we need more than anything today, is we need. Um, We need men and women to be faithful in the areas God has called them. We need fathers and mothers to be faithful in their families where God has placed them. We need pastors to be faithful to their churches. And I mean, just speaking of pastors, it seems like every pastor today wants to be a celebrity pastor. Yeah. And every pastor today wants, uh, you know, is chasing the likes and is chasing, you know, the views and, and all these sorts of things. And, you know, all the while they're, their congregation is not being fed. It's right. not being ministered to. and But boy, they got a lot of views that, that day. Right, right. And, you know, how many, um, you know, and we, we said this about Spurgeon, how many, how many pastors throughout the history of the church um, have faithfully served their congregations? How many fathers have faithfully served their wives and their families that we don't know about simply because, we don't, they're not the, the, they're not the video that went viral, but yeah. they're not, you know, they're not the one that, that blew up or whatever. Um, and so I think that rather than sort of chasing these, these highs, we, our primary concern needs to just be where, where has God put me? How can I be faithful here?
1: Day in and day out. Right. And how do I remain faithful until either I'm convinced I wipe the dust from my feet the world or the institution turns his back on me, or the Lord calls me home. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'll go and I do the work, and there's no changing that. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, at Machen's life, man, he was so, so much a breath of fresh air, yes. especially with what we see today. People just abandon and they leave and they go and they forget and they. They just change they change occupations or they change ministries or they change this, that and the other about their life. It or they, they, they change their they convictions
0: change. because, you know, I don't I don't wanna lose my
1: friends. I don't wanna lose my job. Yeah. Almost as quickly as they change a shirt, man. Yeah. And and so when we look at that so what was it that drove him, and this book really does lay it out pretty well. What is it that drove him to fight? What was the what was the things he saw in liberalism that he said, hey, hey no, 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 we've got to fight these things? And he yeah. he kind of breaks it down to six things. The six chapters are how he breaks it down. Um so he says, Hey, we've got to fight for doctrine. You know, we've got to fight for the biblical understanding of God and man. Yeah. We've got to fight for the bible and how the bible describes itself and how we understand the bible is throughout all of time we've got to fight for christ we've got we've got to fight for
0: salvation and we've got to fight for the church right right and he did that day in and day out well and you know it's it's always interesting that throughout church history clarity on biblical teaching always arises out of controversy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, I think what Machen does a really good job of in, in Christianity and liberalism is highlighting what some of the uh, fundamentals of the yes. Christian faith are. Yes. You know, we always say major on the majors, minor on the minors. You know these, you know these are primary issues. These are secondary issues, and so I think he does a good job of of highlighting these. You know, in these six chapters, like you said, these are primary issues. Yes. And it's because liberalism differs on these primary issues that it's categorized as a separate religion. Yeah. And he, he, he wrote a a short little biography called Christianity in, in conflict. And he just kind of, you know, briefly kind of touches on some of the, the big events in, in his life. I mean, it's, it's very short. Um, but uh, he, he talks about sort of why he wrote Christianity and Liberalism. And, and here's what he says. He says, in my little book, Christianity and Liberalism, I tried to show that the issue in the church of the present day is not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom between two essentially different types of thought and life. There is much interlocking of the branches, but the two tendencies, modernism and supernaturalism, or otherwise designated non-doctrinal religion and historic Christianity, spring from different roots in particular i tried to show that christianity is not a quote life as distinguished from a doctrine and not a life that has doctrine as it's changing symbolic expression but that exactly the other way around it is a life founded on a doctrine right
1: right that christianity yeah you cannot and 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 so And he he addresses this in the book, and it still prevails today, this mindset that, man, I just love Jesus, man. I just love Jesus, man. You know, or, you know, God loves you, man. And and don't get Way down to the nitty gritty of of you know i don't need doctrine i just need jesus and that kind of stuff you know we get right we still no doctrine hear about the
0: bible no creed
1: but christ and that's right we hear those Which kinds of things a doctrine and the creed that's right we hear those sorts of <laughs> things today and and it, it was it was ignorant then and it's ignorant today yes but it's it's got like all heresies it's got a nagging way of sticking around and getting popularized yes and yes. and that's why it's so important again to see that that the the heresies never get tired and the heretics never get ha- tired of their heresies but so often so often we find that truth is not tired of being, uh, of being truth. Truth is never worn down, but those who communicate truth, man, we do get tired of communicating the gospel. We try and find yes. different or new ways of saying those things. No, like Machen said, we have got to be devoted to the majors. You know, we major on the majors, minor on the minors. We've got to be devoted to those things and never grow tired of saying right, those right. truths. Well, like Jude day says, day out.
0: like Jude says, we contend for the faith once. For all delivered to the saints. We're right. not trying to invent anything new. Right. We're not trying to find a a, a you know, a new phenomenon. We w- it's a historic faith that's rooted in historical events and it's that that we're proclaiming. It's yes. nothing else.
1: Right. And those truths were true when they were first said, they're true today and they can still and will still go against every heretical view, they will win over every heretical view, and they are worth fighting over every heretical view. And those heretics will never get tired of of espousing their lies. We must never, never grow weary and tired of sharing the truth of the gospel of Christ. And Machen said it, he said it uh, in the introduction, sets it up throughout the rest of the course of books. We've got the doctrines, we've got God and man, Scripture, Christ, salvation, and the church never, never waver on how the Bible identifies
0: those right, things. Right, right. And in the introduction, he asks this question. He says, what is the relationship between Christianity and modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? And he he goes on to say it is this problem which modern liberalism attempts to solve. Mm-hmm. And so modern liber- liberalism is trying to bridge the gap or mesh this sort of enlightenment, sort of scientific understanding of the world and the historic Christian faith. And what always ends up happening is that when you have competing ideologies, when you have contrary religions, what always ends up happening is one wins out. Yeah. They, yeah, they yeah. can never be maintained together. One always wins out. And unfortunately, what we see constantly in our day is that it is always – That which is contrary to Christianity that wins out, and so you have this sort of, you know, like like I said, this modern, you know, quote scientific understanding of the world, really Darwinistic understanding Mm -hmm. of the world, and we're trying to blend it with Christianity, and it's not possible. As Machen points out, there's some interlocking of the branches, you know, between these ideologies, but they are coming from different roots. They are two separate trees, And and we can't. There's no way for these to be grafted in together.
1: And that's important to understand. You know, one of the things that we are I, I and I do believe this. I believe that we are called as Christians to be culturally relevant. You know, in uh, but it's in this way. If I'm going to be on the mission field in if I'm going to be in the mission field in Spain, well I better understand how to speak Spanish, right, You know, those right. kinds of things. That is a cultural relevance that is absolutely applicable. What I never am called to do is to uh, let cultural relevance or the ideas of the culture permeate Christianity. Yes. And that's what we see so many times. And, and Machen says, yes, you know, if we can put it in, in kind of, Common vernacular today, there is a cultural relevance that is important with Christianity. absolutely. Absolutely, there is a cultural relevance that we should understand and that we should work with. Absolutely. But that cultural relevance is a different root, it's a different tree. And even though there are times where they meet, and even though there are times where maybe they even intertwine, they are never to be seen as primary. That cultural relevance is never primary over and above the gospel. Right, right. And so that's where liberalism as he addresses in this book that's where liberalism has gone astray they've taken cultural relevance and it's not just a language thing cultural relevance in terms of 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 the ideas of the culture were permeating christianity and that was becoming a more important over and above the gospel way of thinking that was permeating the church the academics and made was saying no 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 it cannot take precedence over the gospel of Christ. Right,
0: right. And that's, I mean, and that's really, that's really the drive of the book. He says, you know, he says, again, he says this in the introduction, he says, modern liberalism may be criticized, one, on the ground that it is unchristian. And that's, (laughs) that's ultimately where his beef comes from. It isn't that, well, I just don't like this idea. It's that fundamentally, like he said, it springs from a different root and it's not a Christian root. And he also goes on to say the second criticism is on the ground that it's unscientific, And I think he's absolutely correct that (laughs) he is right. um, You know, in in defense of sort of these Darwinistic, you know, atheistic, naturalistic positions, uh, science has deviated from Mm -hmm. science. Yeah, deviated from from true science. Yeah, Uh, I mean, and we see that kind of on display today, where um, any any disagreement with the scientific consensus is censored. They don't they don't want to engage the issue. They want to be right. That's
1: right. And and the thing is, is uh, you know, the scientific method, and I've said this before, the scientific method is always to follow the evidence back to its logical conclusion, everything like that. Well, atheism already puts its cards on the table and it says Right, we'll right. follow the we'll follow the evidence to its logical conclusion uh, conclusion unless that logical conclusion is God. Right, Theism right. means not God. You know, we will, right, do, we will right. say, we will follow it to everything except God, not God.
0: Well, and when you start with, and this is the reality, we all, you know, approach the evidence with certain presuppositions. Mm-hmm. We have a, a lens and a framework through which we interpret the evidence. Because we are Bible-believing Christians, we look at the evidence and say, this evidence needs to be interpreted. It needs to be filtered through the lens of scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come to understand the evidence. Well, uh, modern, uh, modern man and modern science likes to pretend that it's playing on neutral ground that, okay, you can have your, your fundamental pre-commitments, but over here in the scientific realm, in the modern realm, we are playing on neutral ground and we just want to follow the evidence where it leads. We're just examining the brute facts. Well, philosopher Cornelius Van Til, who, you know, left Princeton to go mm-hmm. with Machen to yeah. Westminster, you know, has said there's no such thing as brute facts. There's no such thing as true neutrality. Right. That even the atheist has fundamental presuppositions and pre-commitments through which he's filtering the evidence. And one of them, like you said, is they are fundamentally pre-committed to this idea that there's no God, that there cannot be a supernatural That's right. explanation for what we see around us. So much and so, so they that start they with, will avoid Anything and that so they, looks like, like they start like. with naturalism and they follow the ad, evidence and they reason back to naturalism and they go, Look at this, the evidence needs to naturalism. And it's like, Well, that's because that's where you started, yeah. And this is really what it comes down to is we have to examine those presuppositions and say, Okay, which is actually consistent with reality, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately, I mean, if atheism is true, well, then why do we care about science? Why do we care about anything, Re- exactly? There, there's no reason to. And so you're caring about something, you're caring about evidence is actually contrary to your fundamental and foundational presupposition, which is naturalism. You, like and you can't have both. And it's interesting how, you know,
1: Machin made that statement, you know, in this book and he was an academic, he was an intellectual, he was someone who was able to fight in that arena and because he said it, it held weight. Today we don't get the same kind of a, a, a glance because the the whole not god it can be anything except for god mindset is so permeated into the quote unquote scientific community that we don't get that same i guess respect or or grace there that well intellectuals do believe these things but does that mean we still because the, they don't recognize they don't give us the grace or the respect that maybe matching received does that mean we stop taking up those fights no the no, no. Because truth is still
0: truth, right? and we must never grow tired of proclaiming the truth. Well, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power into salvation. That's right. And, you know, Scripture tells us that the natural man cannot discern the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. That's right. And so we recognize that going in. Well, of course you don't accept these things because you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. That's right. And in order for you to come to not only accept the truth, but to love the truth— it's through regeneration. It's through God taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. It's only then that you can come to see reality for what it truly is. That's again, right. going back to Van Til, Van Til, you know, defined sort of reason and, um, you know, rationalism as, as thinking God's thoughts after him mm-hmm. that uh, again, like, you know, like we mentioned, there's no brute facts, you know, all facts are God's facts Yeah, um, and reality is God's reality. And so in order for us to be reasonable or rational or logical we have to think God's thoughts after him. Yeah. And the reality is is that sinful man can't think God's thoughts after him because he's dead in his trespasses That's and right. sins. That's his right. his reason is 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 faulty. And so we you know we we don't look at that and say well because of that I'm going to I'm going to stay out of this fight. I'm not going to engage. No no we, we go in we say no 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 no. Your understanding, your reasoning is is faulty and it's contrary to reality. Yeah. But the reason is because you don't have the gospel. Right. so let me go ahead, let me go ahead and tear down your your presuppositions. Let me tear down your understanding, this false understanding of reality. But let me also give you the gospel. Yeah. So that you can come to know the truth. So that you can start thinking rightly and love the truth.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that you can start understanding these things so that your eyes can be open to the revealed truth that God has given us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so at the end of you know, this introduction where you know, he's, really, he's really laying out, he, this is why I'm writing this book. Uh, he says this, he says, in the midst of all the material achievements of modern life, mo- one may well ask the question whether in gaining the whole world, we have not lost our own soul. Mm-hmm. Are we forever condemned to live the sordid life of utilitarianism? Or is there some lost secret, which if discovered will restore to mankind something of the glories of the past? Such a secret the writer of this little book would discover in the Christian religion. But the Christian religion, which uh, which is meant, is certainly not the religion of, mo- of the modern liberal church, but a message of divine grace, almost forgotten, as it was in the Middle Ages, but destined to burst forth once more in God's good time in a new reformation and bring light and freedom to mankind. And that was needed in Machen's Day, and I think more than ever, that's needed in our day as well.
1: Absolutely, it is. Absolutely is. And let us all be willing to take up that call and be bulldogs and contend for the truth.
0: We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of Christianity and liberalism, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to contend for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from North Clay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives we we'll